AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I lost my poor meatball when somebody sneezed. I'm Joe McCormick. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Our host, Jonathan Strickland, is out on vacation this week, so Joe and I are going it alone. He is out uh, getting the top of his head sunburned, Uh, I'm sure. Yes, that is usually what happens, actually. Well, I don't know. He might wear a helmet on the beach. I'm not sure. A helmet? (laughs) <laughs> Jonathan's not really a hat person. He's more of a helmet person. I've seen him wear baseball caps, although I think that the helmet thing would go better with his entire mad scientist persona. So 
Right. But you know what I bet Jonathan is doing while he's out on vacation? What? I bet he's eating some delicious food. Oh, I bet he is. I'm kind of jealous of his delicious food. Yeah. Uh, that's that's one of the things you do on vacation, right? You oh, go out, of course. You, you eat delicious food and you take pictures of it and you send it back to the people at home. In order to make them jealous, specifically. Yeah. But do you know a really cool place you can go where you almost definitely don't get to eat delicious food? Um, space? That's exactly right. Uh, I was just reading a little review of some space food that came out, I think it was uh, in 2007 or so, in Discover Magazine about what the astronauts eat up there at the ISS. So they had a food critic eating it, and it didn't sound too appealing. Apparently, a, a favorite among the astronauts is the shrimp cocktail, which sounds disgusting to me, but the, the, they I find mean- it... Is it dehydrated, rehydrated shrimp, I would assume? Yeah, I'd have to assume that's what it is. Uh, that doesn't sound like a party to me personally. It comes but... in packages, you know, and you got to add hot water, I guess, and with a syringe. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really... Uh... Yeah, the, the whole process of eating in spaces is um, designed so that you get a, a minimum number of crumbs out into the, the, the open air because um, or closed air, as the case may be, because those can, can bounce around and well, wreck all kinds of systems. And, you know, so, so it, it has to be very specifically engineered for this entire, um, A, um, conservation of resources so that you're not creating unnecessary waste. And B, right, making sure that you're not making a mess. Well, as we learned from the Simpsons episode, Deep Space Homer, if you just crack open a bag of potato chips in the capsule, they could clog the instruments. <laughs> uh, the, the science of the Simpsons is pretty rock solid. Right. Uh, so so a lot of the foods there you get are they're designed to be easy to eat from a little uh, pouch or something like that. And they're they're shelf stable for transport up into space. And so. That's understandable. Uh, but wouldn't it be great if you could get any food you wanted in space? I, I mean, I'd take that option here, honestly. Well, yeah. But you know who does get any food they want in space? The people on Star Trek. They do, along with those snazzy jumpsuits. How do they get it? Do they just have a really good chef on the Enterprise? Replicators. Replicators. That's uh, right. Of, of course, we, we've all seen the whole tea Earl Grey hot kind of thing. Um, For those of us who haven't, uh, Captain Jean-Luc Picard has a fondness for Earl Grey tea. Mm-hmm. Hot. hot Earl hot. Grey tea. So he goes up to the wall and there's a little nook in the wall and he speaks to it. He says, tea, Earl Grey, hot. And it comes right out. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it molecularly assembles this or possibly submolecularly assembles this this cup and the tea and makes it warm and serves it up to you. Because that is what computers of the future can do. It's a dream come true, really. And that's why today we're talking about food replicators. That's our uh, that's our topic for forward thinking to today. Is this possible to make a food replicator? And if so, how would it work? So how do they work on Star Trek? Well, so it's it's a machine that creates material objects. And it's not in Star Trek actually limited to food, is it? Uh, right. You can make any. I mean, like I said, it also creates the cup when you order a oh, cup of yeah. tea. So uh, but they also use it for for building all kinds of things and like getting new clothes, I imagine, stuff like that. Yeah, you can basically you can produce parts with it, I think, to if you want to repair the enterprise, you can make something that you need to go in a certain place. Basically, the only things it can't make are things that would make the plot too easy if you were able to just manufacture one. So I think it can't make new, like, 
drive fuel. It can't make dilithium crystals or oh, right because that like would be that. that would be ridiculous. And in a lot of episodes, it seems to be used as like it's comic relief. Uh, it's the sort of jokes where people have the jokes like uh, there are too many options at Starbucks. I just want coffee. They do that in Star Trek, right? You know, I, I just want plain hot tomato soup. Not any of these 17 varieties. <laughs> or, or it's the joke where the, the, the human language to computer language compatibility where the I mean, even though this is an extraordinarily advanced computer system, for some reason, if you say hot Earl Grey tea, it doesn't necessarily get it. Um, and also they use it to, I think, illustrate some principles about like economics or the prime directive. Like, is it ethical to share replicator technology with? planets that don't have this kind of thing yet. Uh, sure. And to make overall commentary about how this this incredible future is partially perfect because nobody is hungry. Right. That's a big thing on the show. That's the economics point, I guess. You know, uh, there's a, this idea of a post scarcity economy in Star Trek, which we can talk about later in this episode. OK, so how does this actually work on Star Trek? <laughs> OK, well, I am very happy to have some angry Trekkies correct me if I get this wrong. But presumably, I believe it works on the same principle as the transporter. That is what I have read as well. Okay, so the transporter, you get on the transporter, it takes all the atoms in your body, converts them into energy, zaps them somewhere else, and reassembles them from that energy into matter there. So, the replicator then would have to be working a little bit differently in that it's not taking food from some transporter deck somewhere else and oh, right. beaming not... it to you. It's just making it out of some other matter or energy. Right. There's not a Starbucks on Klingon that's that's shipping you your muffins. Right. So it'd be like if you got into the transporter and it transported you somewhere but turned you into a bunch of muffins, delicious muffins for, for the Klingons or whoever ordered them. Um, but it, 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 you wouldn't have to use live humans. Don't look so shocked. No, I mean, you, you could probably turn anything into muffins, right? Uh, right. And I think that that's the point of, of, of these replicators is that they're using waste materials from the ship. Um, again, not necessarily humans. This isn't all soil and green, but, <laughs> um, but, but, but other stuff that has been used and they don't need anymore to, to transfer into delicious muffins. Okay. Well, let's talk about the, the different ways it could theoretically be working. That's one. It's taking waste material. So taking matter and then changing that into other matter. Um, and that could be done, I, I could imagine, at a couple of different levels. One would be at the molecular or atomic level. Mm -hmm. So say you throw in a bunch of human excrement and trash from the cafeteria, just put it right back in. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what else they use, just stuff they don't want on the Enterprise, uh, old old Captain Kirk laundry. I am done with this keyboard. Just, right. Yeah. Bye-bye. Don't need it anymore. Uh, so that gets broken down into atoms and molecules, and then those get reassembled by some magical procedure into the food you want to eat. And please, I'm open to correction on this issue as well, but it would seem to me that if you were just breaking it down to the molecular or atomic level, you would be limited in the kind of things you would produce because you'd have a certain number of carbon atoms and a certain number of iron atoms and you would have to rearrange those into something that would use basically the same number of the same kinds of atoms. Uh, right. So if you've got a teacup and you want tea, uh, that's maybe a difficult conversion. Yeah. Right. I don't know what atoms are in a teacup. Yeah. But. If you've got leftover juice and you want tea, maybe that's a little bit 
easier to, <laughs> to wrangle. I don't know. I'd imagine the cup would be harder. I don't know. The, 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 this is all speculation. But at any rate, so there's a there would be a way to get around this, right? Uh, sure. Yeah. If you take this down to the subatomic level, wherein you're building the kinds of atoms that you need. Right. Then you have the same parts for all atoms, right? You need neutrons, protons, electrons. And if you can break it down to that level, well, then you can make whatever atoms you need. You can make whatever molecules you need and you can make whatever nanostructures you need, which build up and up and up until you have whatever kind of thing you want to build. It's the most basic not the most basic, but uh, the the farthest down the chain we'd need to go. A, a good operative building block, yeah. Yeah, of course, there are some questions about this because if you're talking about taking apart atoms and then using the subatomic particles, there's a thing that happens when we split atoms. Uh, yeah, yeah, that whole nuclear fission thing or Yes, yes, fission, I used the correct word, uh, <laughs> is, produces a, a great deal of, of energy. And uh-huh. so, and I'm not sure that I would personally want, yeah, bombs going off every time I just want a cup of tea. Yeah. Okay. So that's a, definitely a concern. Uh, not to make it seem like just breaking it down to the atomic or molecular level would be totally a piece of cake. Uh, but let's think about the other way, which is instead of going from matter to a different kind of matter, would it be possible to just take energy, just straight up energy from the ship's power plant and turn that into the atoms we need in order to make our food? Uh, theoretically, yes. Uh, we do know about a process that's called pair production, where, where you can basically convert a photon into a positron and an electron, electrons being, you know, matter. Yeah. Um, but that's that's, you know. At the single photon level, and you're only creating electrons, and I'm not sure how that becomes a cup of tea. Um, also, the the amount of energy that it takes to kick off this process is quite a bit of energy. Yeah. Uh, again, this would be a problem at the physics level. I think we'd have an, uh, uh, an amount of energy and a scalability question here. Uh, but it is true that you can turn energy into matter, just like you can turn matter into energy with a nuclear reaction you can split a photon into an electron and a positron, and those two would fly off in opposite directions, and, and there you'd have an electron. This is a massive particle. It's it's matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, you could also just think about it in terms of the Big Bang, right? So you, you have, like, expanding energy that cools and turns into material, mm-hmm. the material we know and love today. Uh, so that is something that is theoretically possible. Is it practical Probably not. It seems very doubtful to me. Yeah, possibly never. I mean, considering that we're doing these kind of pair production experiments at like the largest particle colliders on the planet in single units. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if we just say, okay, I believe we just put on the I believe hat and say it works, it works. Are they any good as chefs on the star- in the Star Trek universe, at least? And we're about to get to some some real facts. Oh, Don't worry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, everyone likes talking about the Star Trek universe eternally. Um, uh, you know, I think that the characters on Star Trek all are a little bit doubtful about that kind of thing or, or not all of them. But but the you got your foodies, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah, I think that Riker sometimes threw like dinner parties on the on the Enterprise in order to show off his Renaissance mannishness and be really Rikery about stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, um, like he'd actually cook. He'd actually cook. Yeah. Make oh. a point of cooking and show off to all of his friends how good of a cook he was. So is this like the, the Star Trek century equivalent of the people who go out in the woods and bow hunt elk these days? They're, uh, they're just like cooking in a walk is their equivalent of that. Uh, yeah. Although there's, there's always a quality issue. I mean, like, like you said, it's a, it's a replicator. It's providing sustenance and not necessarily quality sustenance. Um, I, I think also like Picard had a couple jars of caviar stashed around uh, because real caviar is superior, according to him, to replicator caviar. Yeah, and you can actually kind of imagine if this were real technology, you can see why it would be the case. It might be an issue of resolution, basically. Like, okay, so you imagine you're an audiophile and you love music. You're one of those people who you can you say you can really hear the difference between an MP3 file, a digitized version and hearing the music played live. Well, I mean, I guess anybody can tell the difference between a MP3 and hearing it live. Uh, but... Just some people don't care that much. Right, right, right. Um, but there is a there's a resolution difference. Anytime you take a real world analog phenomenon and turn it into digital data, you are, you know, you're shaving off the edges. You're experiencing a loss. Right. Um, and there's also a, a slight question of whether it's... Um, healthy or or even ethical from a from a basic human standpoint to eat replicator food when you have the option to 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 grow food the normal way um there, there was an episode of deep space 9 that dealt with that where there was this kind of like luddite-ish group of colonists who um even when presented with the with the technology basically refused to use it huh i didn't see that one <laughs> deep space 9 i think i'm one of the only like five people on the planet who really liked that show uh well i I wouldn't go there. But this, of course, is a it's a common idea that like technologically produced or assembled food in sci fi. That's often seen as like you can tell there's something wrong with it. Like in uh, Cronenberg's version of The Fly, there's a part where they they've got a teleporter pod in that movie and they teleport a steak from one to the other. And Gina Davis eats it and says, yeah, yuck, it tastes synthetic. Yeah, right. Uh, But but there's been this this idea of hope for this kind of artificial food concept for a really long time. I mean, going back to like the, the, the 60s with the Jetsons and food pills. Oh, it goes back before that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. How about uh, the French chemist, Pierre-Eugène Marcellin? Marcellin? Mar- I, I, I don't do French names well. Bertelot. I, I did not look it up, so I'm not okay, sure. Okay. He's a French chemist named Bertelot, and, and he was uh, he was an important French chemist. But th- there, I found this great old article uh, called Foods in the Year 2000, Professor Bertolo's Theory that Chemistry Will Displace Agriculture. And that was by Henry J.W. Dam in uh, McClure's Magazine, September 1894. 1894? Yeah. Okay, so so they were looking forward to foods in the, in the incredible year 2000. Yeah, what will it be like in the year 2000? And he did not imagine Chipotle. What he imagined was, <laughs> well... I mean, to a chemist back then, you can see why this would make sense. He says the foods we eat are entirely made up of atoms. I mean, duh, most people don't know this, but you, you basically you've got four leading elements. You've got carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. With a few others thrown in, of course. Yeah, I mean, and you can make the you can find all of those elements in, say, a piece of charcoal, a glass of water and a breath of air. Sure. So why can't we turn those things into delicious food? Right. And that was actually Bertolo's idea. He was like, look, agriculture is on the way out. Why are we raising crops the old slow way? 
and, and, and slaughtering, slaughtering animals. animals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And why are we doing it like that when we could just take these atoms and make all the nutrients we need? Obviously, there are a few other elements, too, than uh, in addition to the ones he named. But the principle basically holds. And, and so I don't think he was quite imagining the Star Trek level of the replicator, but he was imagining a a cheap plentiful chemical synthesis of food. Uh, right. And he wasn't even the only person working on the issue around that time. Um, there was one, uh, uh, Jean Front, who manufactured an artificial meat from brewery and distillery wastes in 1912. And, and I mean, the stuff was nutritionally superior to beef, but how did it taste? Um, Efron, <laughs> Efron, Efron himself has this really terrific quote in which he says, it would be a hundred times better if foods were without odor or savor, for then we should eat exactly what we needed and would feel a great deal better. What seems certain is that such synthetic foods are nourishing. Okay, okay. So what he was saying was that it doesn't matter if it tastes and looks like cardboard, because uh, it's good for you, so eat it. Right. Well, and so they were talking about uh, having plentiful nutrition, which is a different kind of thing than on Star Trek, but but touches some of the same themes of like a post scarcity idea. Right. Uh, in fact, Bertolo even seems to hint that he he thinks that perhaps this kind of uh, chemical manufacture of resources will make humans more peaceful. Basically, one of those like like end all wars <laughs> will be brought by artificial meat kind of things. Well, yeah. uh, it's an interesting idea. Yeah, if you if you have something that can just easily produce the resources we need. Maybe conflicts will fade away. He also, I think, mentioned that there's something about the brutalizing effect on humans of having to kill animals for meat. It makes us, you know, yeah, angry people with poor ethical decision making processes. I don't personally kill the animals I eat, so perhaps I've I've been like shielded, like removed from the earth. Fishing once when I was a kid, but that's that's about it. Okay. But these are not the only uh, past futurists who have looked ahead and said, oh, chemical synthesis of food. In fact, our one of our favorite people here, Arthur C. Clarke, predicted replicators pretty much like what they've got on Star Trek. Uh, yeah, and here you predicted those for 2040. <laughs> Ooh, don't know if we're on track for that one, Arthur. Yeah. But, yeah, he predicted... Uh, A universal replicator, this is a quote, universal replicator based on nanotechnology uh, is now available to create any object from gourmet meals to diamonds. The only thing that has value is information. That was for the year 2040 on his future timeline. Uh, Right. But but the press is really fond of kind of citing Star Trek replicators every time some kind of new product or technology comes out that that looks even vaguely promising. Right. Uh, Some of the recent stuff like like lab grown beef. Oh, yeah. So lab grown beef is really cool, but. It's not really in the same ballpark at all. Oh, no, no. It's an entirely different sport, I think. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we've talked about that on this podcast before, but lab-grown beef is a uh, an, uh, brand new advance, basically, just from last year. It's organically grown beef, so it's real beef. It's not fake beef. Mm-hmm. It's just grown uh, in, in vitro, in, right. in, in glass, in a test tube rather than in a cow's body. Right. So you take some stem cells out of a cow's muscle and then you create the right lab conditions and you just allow these cells to multiply and make cow muscles in a little dish. 
you add them together and you can make beef out of that. And, and that's great. You know, it offers, uh, potential future advantages in terms of things like consuming less energy to produce, uh, the meat and it avoids animal cruelty. And so that's awesome, but it's not really anything like on demand food synthesis. I mean, one thing I'd say is that it's only one kind of protein. It's not like it's making you a plate of a meat and three sides like huh. the Star Trek replicator would. Right. And it, it takes time and energy to grow. Uh, it's a slow process, not an instantaneous on demand thing. Sure, sure. Um, there, there's also nothing cost free about it. Oh, yeah. It, it's possibly way more costful, uh, expensive would be the word I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah. Uh, than, than just growing a cow would be. Right. It's definitely more expensive now. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the advantage, I guess, would be that it takes less energy in the long run and has a smaller, uh, carbon, carbon footprint. footprint. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but another big buzzword, uh, 3D printing, 3D printing food. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about a few of these. Uh, uh I, I want to talk about the NASA one, the NASA pizza. Oh, NASA pizza. Okay. So in pizza tw- of the stars <laughs> yeah. in 2013, this is real. NASA announced it would fund a project on 3D printed food. So they're getting into future nom noms for space. <laughs> And it gave $125,000 to a Texas-based company called Systems and Materials Research Corporation to develop 3D-printed food for future space missions. Uh, Right. The prototype uses shelf-stable powders and oils mixed with water to construct stuff. 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 You know, dough or tomato sauce or whatever. Yeah. There is video online of this uh, this printer prototype making a pizza. And let me tell (laughs) you, looks absolutely delicious. If you are into death by cafeteria food, yeah. uh, not to downplay their achievement at all. I'm sorry. I shouldn't no. make fun. But uh, the idea that you've got a printer printing a pizza is pretty cool. But it it doesn't look like the my favorite pizza. It, <laughs> it looks a little bit strange. Um, uh, you know, and, and any time that you're that you're working with uh, shelf stable ingredients, it's not an ideal situation for nutrition, I think. Yeah. And laying them on a substrate one tiny dot at a time. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Still, still kind of expensive and awkward. Um, uh, but there's more than just the pizza, right? There, there are people, plenty of people uh, 3D printing food. Oh, absolutely. Uh, sugar is a big one right now. Um, there's there's a pair of kids named Liz and Kyle von Hasseln who um, agreed to make a cake for a friend's birthday, yeah, and then realized that they didn't own an oven, Um, but that they (laughs) did own a 3D printer because these are very first world problems that Mm. some people have. Uh, No, no, I'm I'm, brilliant people. They they realized that precise combinations of of water and sugar can be printed in layers just the way that the plastics would in in a 3D printer. And they've got a version that works with chocolate, too. Essentially, they're just making really fancy-looking frosting with structural capacity. Um, If if you've ever watched video of sugar sculpture before, you'll appreciate how being able to design and print improbable structures is is pretty nifty rather than having to, you know, work with um, molten sugar lava Uh because that's like death. Um, (laughs) But... But you probably wouldn't be able to survive long on this kind of food. Um, if, if you heard oh, yeah. Buzz, by the way, about ChefJet printers, perhaps especially from 2014 South by Southwest, that's the brand that, that these guys created. Um, and bigger names are getting into the confectionery 3D printing business, too. Hershey just struck a deal in January of 2014 with 3D Systems to develop chocolate confectionery printing technology. Yum. There's actually a, a product I read about. I feel kind of strange about it. Uh, 
So it's a product called Natural Machines Foodini 3D Printer. Foodini. It can supposedly, if the ads are to be believed, print delicious meals, including pizza, ravioli, and other stuff. And this isn't so much for space uh, as for sort of ease and luxury. Sure. So the idea is it makes ingredients like ravioli that you don't have the time, skill, or desire to make my hand. It can make like rolled pasta and and stuff like that, printing it one layer at a time. Um, I can sort of see that making sense as a, as a thing. If the, if the ads are again, to be believed and it's <laughs> right. as good as it looks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I've, I've, I've seen, I'm a little bit dubious about that one because the price point <laughs> is like $1,300 and that seems like an awfully low price for, for ravioli whenever you want it. I don't know. <laughs> I could be, I could be wrong. Um, but wait, there's more. Um, there's also okay. a, uh, one Jeffrey Lipton, who's, uh, a- as of late 2013 was a Cornell engineering PhD candidate. And, uh, he and some, some other Cornell people started experimenting with printing food in 2009, um, using like gelatin and flavorings to create little snacks. And I have a quote from Mr. Lipton. He said, it was met with universal condemnation. <laughs> It was very Soylent Green. Who are um, those people on Star Trek who <laughs> didn't like the replicator? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they've since then um, switched their research to the kind of pre-processed foods that we've been talking about here. You know, uh, creating like quiche or meatloaf or noodles or veggie chips or something like that from from kind of deconstructed food bits. You know, and anything that you can run through a food processor and shove out as some kind of loaf is uh, basically okay for 3D printed food. But anything more advanced than that seems like a no-go at the current moment. Okay. Which, by the way, I do want to say is is not necessarily a a diss on that kind of food construction method because, I mean... uh, like we said in those in those protein related episodes that that lab grown beef stuff was in, mm-hmm. those aired back in September 2013. If you guys want to go look for them, if you missed them, but a lot of the food that we currently eat, like like bologna, for example, is already really highly processed. Lots of cold cuts, in fact, are made from deconstructed or emulsified meat that has been shaped and rebonded using animal or vegetable proteins. Mm, rebonded. Yay. Okay, 3D printed food. I, I think that means we're sort of a little bit closer to replicators, but not really. I mean, this certainly isn't assembling food at the molecular level for magic meal production. No. First of all, it, it's not assembling the molecules that make the food. The whole process works on the macro level. It, it's laying down little dots of pre-prepared edible ink. And those dots, I mean, they're made from a recipe. So it's pre-prepared powdered dough or tomato sauce or cheese. It's not like molecules of carbon and calcium and things being put together one at a time. No. Um, on a spaceship, it seems like these printable materials would have to be pre-prepared. It also isn't instant. I mean, if you watch this going... I, I, again, not to knock it, but it's, it's really pretty slow. Yeah, it's 3D printing. It, it's not going to go immediately. It's not going to pop out in a few seconds like the replicator does. It also doesn't really solve any problem about sourcing nutrition, the scarcity thing. So if we had a, a replicator, we wouldn't have to worry about where food came from. It could just make it out of anything. Uh, this but, needs to make it out of food. Uh, right. And in fact, it involves a whole bunch of, of processing of regular food in order to get it to a state that you can put it through this printer. So, right. so extra work. R- exactly. So it's really more just a way of uh, a very convenient way in space, perhaps, but a way of turning bulk foodstuffs into recognizable dishes on a spaceship. Uh 
But what else is there? I mean, I think it's time we just go back to nanotechnology. (laughs) 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 Uh, That's that's the solution to everything. uh, But this is, I think, if we want to talk about real proposed technology that people are actually thinking about, this is the closest thing we're going to get to the idea of the replicator, which is the idea of the molecular assembler slash nanofactory. So what's the deal with the molecular assembler slash nanofactory? All right. The the idea of it goes like this. Picture all of those great factories you've seen and like how it's made. Okay. Done. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we can Coke bottles or yeah, graham yeah. crackers. All right. Now picture all of that on the nanoscale with like entire factory floors taking up some some dozen nanometers as as molecules are, are being sorted and atoms are being rearranged. And then increasingly large molecules are built and pushed out through increasingly large factory floors. Um, this this is accomplished not just through mechanical manipulation, but also through chemical reaction. Right. Um, You'd be like positioning reactive particles at certain points to to form a chemical bond with something to move it along. Uh, exactly. And eventually, so you're you're going to get macroscale bits that more bigger machines can use <laughs> to build whatever you'd like. Okay, so it, that's sort of like a printer idea, but it's like printing one atom at a time, kind of, and and adding them together more and more until you have building blocks you can work with, and then eventually you can produce a computer or a a steamed fish or I, I don't know what <laughs> yeah yeah a I mean, steamed fish I, I, yes <laughs> replicator the future give me a steamed fish <laughs> well you know whatever you'd like steamed fish is very healthy um but but okay so how realistic is this well i'd say we're probably not even close if this is possible at all uh so people like the this was made popular the idea of molecular assemblers was made possible by one of the big minds behind nanotechnology, who is K. Eric Drexler, and there was another nanotechnologist named Richard Smalley, who sort of argued with Drexler. That they published a, a back and forth uh, years ago; it was more than a decade ago, um, about whether molecular assemblers were possible. And and Smalley had criticisms about how these machines would be too clumsy to do what Drexler was saying they they could possibly do. Um, but obviously. I, I don't have the level of technical sophistication or knowledge to adjudicate this. Oh, um, ab- it's, me neither. <laughs> it seems to be a debate that's ongoing whether it's possible to build synthetic machines Such that machines, do this right. kind of thing. In order, yeah, yeah, at that scale and that elegance in order to do what we want them to do. Right, but it it does seem that if it is possible, it's not like we're almost there. It It, it is going to be a ways off if it's possible at all. Uh sure. And some some other thinkers like like Michio Kaku have have pointed out that molecu- molecular assemblers do exist in in real life. I oh. mean in in nature. Uh, yeah, that that that's almost a trivial fact actually in biology, uh like you know enzymes and ribosomes. Uh right, because we, I mean every day turn um you know a, a glass of water and a burger or whatever into cells in our body. Yeah, so ribosomes are they're these structures inside the cells in your body that they take a bunch of amino acids and say, I'm going to fix this up. And they make chains of amino acids, turn them into proteins. And then those proteins are the things that make your body. Yeah, yeah. I I, I was I was laughing off camera because off off mic, because I enjoy Joe's intercellular uh, (laughs) narration voice very much. Okay, so 
What about synthetics? Do we have anything along the lines of a ribosome that's actually been created in the lab? Well, believe it or not, something kind of close. So last year there was a news release from uh, the University of Manchester discussing how a team based in their school of chemistry had created a machine that's kind of like an artificial ribosome. So it's a synthetic molecular machine on the nanoscale that's capable of putting together molecules. And it's much slower than a real ribosome, but basically it works. And their findings were published in the journal Science in 2013. And so... That's really great. Yeah, that's awesome. But it, it's very, it's small scale, it's slow, and it's not versatile. It's experimental. Right. It's yeah. not versatile, uh, like the idea of a real replicator. So, uh, I don't, I don't want to just shove that aside. I mean, that's really cool research, but it's not, if you saw a headline saying like, we've built a replicator, that's not what it is. No. And, and one, one of the other problems that we're talking about here is, um, the amount of energy it would require in order to, I mean, I mean, some, some of these terrific advances that we have been talking about are operating at a cellular level, which is really quite small and, and very slowly and in a lab, which has huge resources. Um, how, how, how is this ever going to be practical or scalable? Yeah, it's a good question. Whether you're going with the sci-fi Star Trek model where the, the mechanisms are, I'm just not sure what they are, or you're going the nanotech model, either way, you've got big hurdles. The, the Star Trek model seems to have this completely unreasonable energy requirement. Um, the, the nanotech model is based on mechanisms that we can't really predict if they're feasible at all. So, what does seem reasonable? I, I want to say a few things. Um, one thing is I think I'd be personally more willing to accept the idea of a future machine that turns waste material into something like uh, bulk sugar or a homogenous mass of protein gruel, mm. which would maybe be like the main constituent of some kind of like space tofu. <laughs> Uh, sure. Um, some kind of uh, building block so that we could at least create stuff that could be used uh, by by real actual chefs. Yeah? Right, right, right. You'd be making uh, constituents of food rather than whole complete dishes that are programmed with atomic precision to have this side and this main course. And, and al dente noodles. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That seems fanciful to me, but I can see... With some degree of plausibility, maybe, you know, you just take the waste products from the ship and you have some chemical process that turns them into usable carbohydrates. Okay, maybe we can go with that. Uh, but there's also this interesting, uh, it's a, it's a problem that Lawrence Krauss talks about in his, he's a physicist, cosmologist, uh, and he has a book called The Physics of Star Trek. Great book, yeah. Yeah. And it's this atoms to bits problem. So, uh, the best I can explain the way I understand it is once you're talking about a complex enough piece of matter, the amount of information you would need to represent it digitally and thus to read and write and store it is just ludicrously huge. Um, and so, and how would you assemble it quick enough? So if there's just some mass of identical copy and paste molecules, you're making the same molecule over and over. That seems a little less fantastical to me. Um, and in fact, it might even be able to be done with a, some very simple chemical reactions. Like you wouldn't even be doing it mechanically. Maybe you just introduce some catalyst and, and you're doing the chemistry right there, just mm -hmm. mixing it up basically. 
You've also you've also got scaling problems here. I mean, I mean, let's say that we've got nanobot armies that can construct whatever atoms we want in whatever configurations we want. Um, like you kind of alluded to a second ago, Joe, I, it, it could take a nanoscale machine millions of years to construct a meaningful amount of macro scale material. I mean, remember that the nano equals billionth like like there are some 150 billion atoms making up just the genetic material, the, the DNA and RNA inside a single human cell. Um, and that's some of the smallest bits involved in, in a cell. So, <laughs> so, you know, even if you had trillions of nanobots, it could take a, a, a serious minute to create a burger. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think that's something that's often skipped over when people are discussing this molecular assembler or nanofactory idea. Seems like it would take a long time. Yeah, like I, I cannot imagine the the number of nanobots that it would require be, be required to to do that kind of work. And and you're basing this on on nanobot magic to begin with, so it's like whelp. Uh, yeah, I also want to introduce a maybe less scientific concern, but uh, just something that we would also need to keep in mind: the idea of eating normal foods in space almost necessarily to me requires artificial gravity. Oh, sure. I mean, it, it was it wasn't tea Earl Grey hot in a hermetically sealed container that isn't going to spill right, all over my yeah. face. Tea yeah. Earl Grey hot to scald me. <laughs> <laughs> it just floats out of the cup. Uh, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Like, oh, I really want a sandwich, but you can't put it down or the pieces of bread and everything float apart. Uh -huh. and, and also all of the crumbs from the sandwich uh, start mucking up your computer systems. Yeah. Yeah. I'd have I'd almost have to imagine that for this to even be worth it, you'd need artificial gravity, I guess, for except some specific types of food that would be easy to clump together. Sure. Uh, yeah. Just just add lots of uh, magical an... clumping nanobots. Well, um, and then like an apple would be fine, I guess, you know, not so much like a bowl sure. of hot and sour soup. I although from from what I understand about space food, everything is uh, presented in cube form, uh, <laughs> like, like 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 bite size form so that you could so that you don't have to bite anything off. Ever. You can just pop a single unit of it and chew with your mouth closed. So that's the kind of future I want to live in. Everything's <laughs> cubes. You got a board cube, you got a dinner cube, and that's it. Okay, so l let's put on the I believe hat again. Sure. I just, I believe, I believe there's a replicator. It's coming in 20 to 40 years. Sure. Definitely. Sure, uh -huh. we got it. Yep. What does it actually mean? What, what are the implications of replicator technology for the world? Lots of people talk about about this idea of a post-scarcity economy. Right? Yeah, so the, the economy is based on the fact that there is a limited amount of stuff and people are competing for goods, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the, you, you can't get everything you want. Uh -huh. And that's why we have things like like money as as a workaround to to trade for stuff that you need that you don't have. Yeah. But how radically would it change society if you didn't? I mean, if you could have any physical thing you wanted. I, we we would be free to 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 do whatever we wanted to um to to work out new problems to seek out new life and new civilizations. I mean, you know, it, it's we would we wouldn't be tied to the same daily grind that we are right now. Uh, I think that that could be true, but I think you'd have to take on board one other assumption. Yeah. Um, which is something about energy. I would like to observe that even in the Star Trek universe, a replicator is not completely a free lunch. 
you're still making one investment, which is energy, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So you need energy to run it. And if we are to stick with the ideas of physics, it may take a lot of energy. Yeah, I'm, I'm picturing, right. It, you know, like we were talking about earlier, when you're getting down to the, to the molecules and, 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 uh, splitting atoms and stuff yeah. like that, that's dangerous energy <laughs> territory. Right. So. This would depend on basically a vast energy surplus. And there are sci-fi thinkers and futurologists and all kinds of people who have imagined that in the future energy could become its own currency. Like I think Arthur C. Clarke imagined that in the future you wouldn't have dollars, you'd have megawatt hours. Sure. That's the currency you use. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if that is the case, if we still have limited energy then – I can see a replicator not really fixing the problems because you'd just be trading one scarcity for another. Uh, right. Have... You're just transferring it to an energy problem. Right. Uh, you would have to work out cold fusion or whatever in order to run your replicators. And then. Right. But so if we assume you got replicators and you've got basically limitless free energy, then OK, then maybe I'm on board with the idea that this post scarcity thing is for real. I mean, do do you think it would really end all wars? It was was that nice French fellow correct? Do you think? I don't know if the idea of uh, so you could have any food you wanted manufactured on the spot and it's just free food on demand, whatever you want. Uh, I don't know if most wars are started by people who have trouble getting enough to eat. <laughs> I. I, you know, certainly revolutions have been started over scarcity or, or unequal distribution. Oh, certainly. Of yeah. resources. Um, and, and lots of fighting has been done over particularly desirable or fertile bits of land, especially in pre-industrialized ages. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a war ender because, uh, humans are still humans, but, but, yeah. Right. You know, like we were saying, it, it, it frees it frees people up to do more of what they want to do rather than, it, you know, it, it removes a layer of what has to be done. Right. So I guess the question then is uh, once people have no rational motivation to fight each other, would they still do it? I mean, would they come up with reasons? I don't know. You know, I which I, is which is probably a, a, a question. penguin <laughs> appeared on my shoulder and told me I had to start a war. <laughs> It can can happen. (laughs) Penguins, penguins are pretty mean. Okay, so even if we never get replicators, uh, I do want to emphasize that some of the technologies we mentioned today that have been maybe mistaken for or Uh, called out, yeah, Uh uh, not entirely accurately compared to a replicator can still make a big difference. So I want to emphasize again, lab-grown meat. I think that's awesome, actually. And it really, it really could, in the future, if made cheap, provide nutrition to millions of people with a much smaller carbon footprint than real meat, and without animal cruelty. And that's a, definitely a real thing. Oh, sure. And and three D printed meals um, in space could make space travel much more comfortable, which could be a huge factor in trying to uh, set settle other planets. Right. I mean, comfort matters when you're in space. You've got people who are astronauts. They need to be performing at their mental and emotional peak. Mm-hmm. Food is a big part of that. Oh, I of mean, course. If, if you're eating nasty gunk from a sealed container, I mean, that, that it, it wears on you. Yeah, yeah. that doesn't help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so and even if somehow we are able to create this magical Star Trek style replicator, I, I guess it probably would be a huge boon to human life. Even if it doesn't eliminate war or uh, if, if, if energy conflicts. is an issue or mm-hmm, any of that, it's still 
if it just means more people have access to nutritious food, you can't really look down your nose at that. Oh, absolutely not. That that would be a lovely thing. Uh, right now in this on this current planet, not even not even with Star Trek jumpsuits involved. Right. So I think that just about wraps up our conversation here about food replicators. Um, we hope that you have enjoyed this episode. And hey, if you have any ideas for other episodes that you would like to hear, please get in touch with us. We have a fancy email address. It is fwthinking at discovery.com. We are also on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Google Plus at fwthinking. And you can visit our website where you can check out more podcast episodes, all kinds of blog posts, and all of Jonathan's wonderful videos. And that website is, again, fwthinking.com. And we hope to hear from you really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.